Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Pivot Bio. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Pivot Bio for sponsoring today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text PROVEN to 31313. Necessity is the mother of invention, as the saying goes, and West Union, Iowa no-tiller Lauren Steinlogge knows this as well as anyone. Personal and family challenges have spurred a series of innovations on his farm, including no-till, interseeding, relay cropping, and more. And while he's a frequent speaker at ag meetings and conferences, he says he learns the most from talking shop with other farmers. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, Lauren sat down with Jay Baxter, who no-tills more than 2,000 acres of corn, soybeans, wheat, sweet corn, and more in Georgetown, Delaware, in a conversation that was moderated by Jen Nelson of Resource Smart. The conversation took place in January 2020, just ahead of Delaware Ag Week. Listen in as Lauren and Jay discuss seven reasons they're using cover crops, including managing manure, weed suppression, improving yields, dealing with extreme weather, and more. Hello, I'm Jay Baxter. I'm a fourth generation here at Baxter Farms in Georgetown, Delaware. Our family ties of agriculture go back more than just four generations. On other parts of the family, it goes back 10 or more. It's really special to me. And I'm Lauren Stomaghi, West Union, Iowa, here for Delaware Ag Week, but honored to be here. First of all, I'm a traditional corn farmer from Iowa that grew up dairy farming through a set of circumstances beyond our control, had to get away from livestock and all that, which has kind of led us to survival mode, which I guess is leading us to what nowadays they call regenerative ag. And what all do you guys grow on your farms? So I grow corn and soybeans, the traditional corn and soybeans. We also grow sweet corn. We try to dabble in edamame, but that's not quite, it's more an experimental crop than anything. We're also growing lava beans for processing for a freezer. We grow chickens and we also have nine greenhouses growing potted flowers. We were corn on corn up until my son got sick in 09. Then we brought soybeans into the mix and gradually started bringing wheat, rye, barley, now buckwheat. We're dabbling with soybeans. Had a greenhouse that we grew hothouse tomatoes in. Okay. And so what got you guys into regenerative ag? Okay. So what's regenerative ag? Because I think I know, but I want to hear from you. That's one of the things I'm tackling this winter. Everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. There's a company out there that came out to my place. When did you start regenerative practices? For me, it comes down to the soil. If I can show you a soil sample where we're actually regenerating, building the soil, that's regenerative ag. The rest of it's a sales pitch. So how do you rebuild the soil? What are you looking at that proves that you are regenerating the soil? We're subjecting our farm to some pretty detailed testing right now. Luther College came out and they did a whole gamut of studies comparing our soils to native soils. 
and we have fields that are actually on par or better than native soils. So we're ahead in organic matter, we're matching on soil density, getting close on the bulk densities, stuff like that. All the stuff they want to measure, okay. we're kind of on par. So we're no longer the degraded resource like some guys would talk about. To me, it's that simple. Show me your soil, that's regenerative. If you can't show that, it's not a product, not something you can sell, it's management. Okay. What are you looking for when you're looking at your soils? You said compared to native soils, what were some of the benchmarks along the way that told you you were moving in the right direction? Profitability is probably the biggest one. I mean, that's the one that's driven us. I mean, we were forced into a position where we couldn't afford to do a lot. I mean, when Ron got sick, we basically had to put every dime we had to keep him alive. So we had to start cutting costs wherever we could. And it was just natural progression. And then we started seeing what's happening. And I'm not the smartest guy out there, but this fall we were matching yields with our neighbors. And it doesn't take much for me to put $180 an acre savings of me compared to my conventional neighbor. I'm seeing what you're seeing, but I'm not seeing it on the scope of the regenerative side that you're referring to. I've got soil samples on farms that goes all the way back to the 80s. They've done every single year, and we're not seeing an increase in OM. We're not seeing a a very much increase on CEC, cation exchange. So I'm just kind of curious. Obviously, there's a huge difference between your soils and my soils, and the higher the organic matter in a soil, the faster it regenerates. And we're seeing that even on our own farm in some of the higher organic soils versus some of the others. But I am seeing what you're referring to as less inputs in steel alone. That's a touchy subject. We start talking about other inputs, but just in steel and labor costs alone and fuel, we are seeing huge savings there and the same return. Well, for us, the biggest catalyst was figuring out how to keep a live root in the soil all the Mm -hmm. time. In our area, university would tell us you got to terminate two weeks ahead of plan. Mm -hmm. Well, in our situation, chances are that's probably going to be frozen soil. So what good is it going to do to terminate? I've watched my friends in Pennsylvania and other places. They can get the big biomass covers. Well, the way we're doing it is we're cheating the system. We plant when fit, and then we terminate the covers when fit using precision covers where we can roll it in between the rows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So even there, we're starting to get away from the herbicides and all that stuff. And that fascinates me. And that just shows why I don't know my geography as well. I associate your farming operation and this farming operation with being level as far as where we are as far as north and south. Obviously, we're so much more moderated because I'm up to the ocean. But it's just very fascinating. I mean, it's an anomaly for us to freeze our soil. And that's something you guys deal with yeah, we'll, for months at a time every year. Yeah, we'll freeze up to six, eight months of the year. Well, on average, we have 140 days of growing season. But by figuring out, you know, the key to me anymore is getting that perennial in the system, mm-hmm. managing that versus, you know, everybody wants to kill. We just need to learn how to suppress things so we can figure out how to keep that carbon cycle flowing 24-7. And from what they tell me, even under a couple feet of snow, as long as the plant is alive, it's still exuding carbon and stuff like that. Yeah, so we were planting cover crop. In less than a month ago. Okay. Cover crop planter still hooked up. It still has seed and it's still sitting where we left it because we're ready to roll again. But we're waiting for this kind of weather. We should have been. But knowing what's coming, our plan is to wait. But from what you're telling me, there really shouldn't be any waiting period for me. My grandfather used to always say, you can't plant until you can sit bare butt on the soil and then you can plant corn. Well, for crying out loud, you'd never plant. <laughs> you wouldn't plant till June. Yeah. Well, there's a key between our operations, figuring out what I'm doing on my operation versus what you're doing on your operation and not trying to adopt it, Mm -hmm. figuring out how to adapt it to that general locale. 
this past two years for us has just been murder. Mm-hmm. Trying to adjust to whatever they want to call what's happening right now. I used to say I'd never planted corn after May 5th. Well, the last two years we haven't started till at least May 5th, if not May 15th. And that's me on a general basis. And the purpose of me doing that is because I encourage my cover crop growth. Typically, as I go across the field with my planter planting green, it's going to destroy that cover crop. And so, therefore, I want as much growth out of it as I can. I mean, I want my hairy vetch. I'm not happy unless it's waist high and starting to flower. And see, for us, hairy vetch will not flower until probably mid-June. And I want to have the crop in by May 1st if Uh I could. But that's where the suppression ideals and that are starting to come in. And now, this year, we have cover crop that was interseeded in June 2017 is going to be standing hopefully by June 2020. We've maintained it all the way through, through different crop sequences. and It's reseeding itself, is what you're saying. The perennial, yeah. some of it's reseeding, but the perennial, I mean, it's the same root all the way through. Biggest thing I want to start figuring out is other plants we can use to do it. Uh-huh. You know, right now, red clover is probably our best. That's fascinating. And trying to figure out how to make that work on the whole system. Part of it was fruit blind, dumb luck, but... Being aware of what's happening and adjusting to it. Two years ago, I was set up, I was two-thirds corn or third beans. Well, I started seeing the way the market was adjusting, so I rolled into two-third beans. Well, that meant about a th- half of my soybeans were going to have the red clover and hairy vetch in. So we laid down a rate of 2,4-D ahead of planting. It took out the hairy vetch, but the, the clover just bounced right back. Here we had non-GMO soybeans in there, so our options were pretty limited. I sweated bullets all that summer, but I, Terry Taylor, a good friend of mine in Illinois, got a hold of him and talking with him, and he's like, hey, that clover's going to scare the heck out of you, but don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. You know, and we came that fall, we had three-foot-tall soybeans and about three-and-a-half-foot-tall clover. That gets spooky. I was starting to figure out, okay, are we going to have to run a dissecting or something like that? Mother Nature stepped in, and the night before I was going to combine, she got down to 20 degrees. That clover just dropped. Oh. But it was still... Being lucky than good. (laughs) It was still a pretty hairy situation. But then fast forward a couple weeks later, you could just see the rows of the clover and stuff like that before freeze up. I started planting. I had about 100 and some acres that way all winter. So I'm trying to adjust and figure out what I'm going to do the next year. And it's like, well, we're going to see this out. Well, about half of it, I did get a little too carried away. We knocked that out completely. But the other half... We figured out we built a hooded sprayer, and then with our interseeding, you know, we're pretty comfortable with some of that stuff. So we went in and planted in between them precision rows of clover, put a herbicide band down on the row, came in with germoxone in standing corn with a hooded sprayer. And I won't recommend that to anybody, but <laughs> you'll see some horror stories mm-hmm. once in a while. But mm-hmm. for a dollar forty-seven an acre, we controlled everything in between the row so eight dollar an acre total herbicide program on non-gmo corn now what's your labor force you, you talk about we and what, what uh, you i show up all year my wife shows up to help with harvest i got a son-in-law now he shows up to help harvest and my dad still tries to help once in a while how old your dad 84 he'll be this year okay 1936 model that's like the kids they're a 95 96 and a 99 model <laughs> that never changes mm-hmm. yeah so that's how I remember things. And yourself, your labor force? Well, I've got my sister here on the farm helping me, and there's no doubt about it, she's my right-hand man. I've got two employees besides that. And um, kind of looking, but 
yet content. Depends on what day you ask me. I've got a tremendous labor force coming. I've got an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old that want to be part of what's going on here. And they are becoming operators at their age. They're some of the best operators I've seen. Obviously, a five-year-old, he wants to be in every moving piece of equipment there is. And the one-year-old, that's her little girl, and she melts my heart. That's all I can say about her. So to see where we've been as far as labor force and where we are now, we're learning about efficiency. Yep. And it seems like I sometimes, to speak to some of my faults, sometimes I try to grow too quickly into certain other things, certain other diversifications on this farm. And so I'm learning to kind of try to rein that back a little bit. And it, there's a real fine line there about planning for the future, for the next generation, and what it takes to invest in their future versus keeping this thing alive so it is viable. That's something I'm really struggling with the last couple of years. I know you guys have had a huge struggle with weather extremes. We've been just as extreme, just different seasons. Our 2018 was like your 2019. I had a, a friend of mine just a little bit north and west of here said that he had enough rainfall in a 12-month period, had enough rainfall for three seasons. And so that's hard to operate around. That's one of the reasons we're starting to see the perennials mm-hmm. taking effect. We have sufficient moisture the last couple of years. Now, granted, if forecast looks like it's going dry, we're going to have to adjust everything again. But as long as we have sufficient moisture, you have a living root out there sucking it up, mm-hmm. we can be more timely yep. with all the excess precipitation we've had and stuff like that. Even come harvest, having that live root out there helps things carry. 60,000 pound mm-hmm. combine going across the field. I've seen that. I've got neighbors that have put tracks on and they're getting stuck, and we're driving through three feet of water and hardly making a rut. You said you're working on perennials. Like, that's the spot that you're focusing your attention on. What are you figuring out in there? Oh, we'd like to figure out a better grass and stuff like that. I know a few guys work with perennial ryegrass, and then there's some trying growing grass, stuff like that. But for us, the simple one, just been a cheap common red clover. Actually, I bought it in Ohio a couple years ago when I went to Dave Brandt's. Bought it direct from the farmer. It's the best seed quality. I think it's the toughest red clover that I've ever seen because we can beat the snot out of it and just keeps coming back. And now we've got enough of it out there. If you pay attention, the red clover grows in our area naturally. I mean, it just thrives. That and other plants that we're focusing on tells us what's going on with our soil and stuff like that. I got to be careful because I'll get in over my head quick here. But indicator plants is something that I'm really paying attention to. I know there's smarter people out there. Klaus Martin's up in New York is probably one of the smartest guys I've ever heard talk on some of that. But What's the idea with that? You pay attention to what the native vegetation or the weeds are telling you. And if you start looking at it, and some of the books we're looking at, it'll tell you, is this high pH soil? Is this a low pH soil or high fertility, low fertility? All these little things. It's as simple as thinking back when they settled America. When the wagon trains went west... Why did they drive by certain areas? Iowa, they considered that a desert. Well, technically it was a swamp. So until they learned how to drain it, they thought it was unproductive ground. As they settled westward, we seen that on Kangaroo Island last year, still breaking ground there. And we were driving down the road and I'm like, okay, why are you guys breaking that farm, but not that side of the road? He's like, well, look at the trees around us and that, and trees are thriving better. So this is better soil and stuff like that. When you get exposed to some crazy stuff, it just makes your mind... Now, you're not suggesting you're, you're negating soil tests and good analytical work with some of this, or are you? Yeah. You are? Yeah. I question any soil samples out there right now. 
you got to remember when you take a soil sample, it's a snapshot in time. Yes. Where if you learn how to start looking at the vegetation and stuff like that, that's live stream. I'm not there yet. It's no different than you looking at your corn plant. You can tell when it starts getting stressed. So if it works on a corn plant, you start looking at the other native vegetation. I got a whole list of stuff. I'm out of season right now, so I'm not focused on that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Red clover is hot. I think it's that you're high in potassium. There's a whole chart, if you start understanding that, and which is funny because when we started pulling back on the fertilizer rates and that, yeah, our soil samples dropped, but red clover started thriving more. So it's like, okay, which do you trust? Jill Clapperton was out to our fields here a couple of years ago, and she had the electrospectograph or whatever it's called, fancy tool that you could basically lay tissue sample you could put a soil sample a meat sample anything you wanted on it and it'd give you a complete elemental breakdown and what i seen that day made me question any tissue samples in that that you could ever pull because we could go down the corn plant and take every leaf off a corn plant and sample them and then go to the next plant do the same thing we took how many corn plants and every leaf and there was no rhyme or reason to any of them so how are you supposed to take that leaf above the ear and get any quantitative data. How many years have you been operating like that? Oh, I'd say we kind of full bore the last five to six years easily, but I mean, we're still using cow manure and stuff like that. I buy cow manure, so we're not completely off the wagon, mm -hmm. but with the cow manure, we're not specific on the rates. I'm more worried about compaction. So when the orders to the manure spreader is, when you come in the field, you go in this driveway and you get out that driveway and you don't deviate slow down a little bit if you're not going to be empty by the end or speed up a little bit if you're so we don't have specified rate but i shoot for a dollar per acre figure on the manure and we try to get everything calmer at least every three to four years you're applying that on top of your cover right that's our goal okay. try to apply to a green cover even though like right now it's froze but the residue is there and my thoughts is as long as we have a standing cover there the manure will fall down and the biology will help incorporate if you get the right cover it's almost like a greenhouse effect in there so it just consumes it fast and hard i know ray archuleta when he was at our place a couple years ago that was supposed to become a approved practice but i assume it hasn't been nobody's talking about it but it's common sense to me. We're working through it here in our area as well. We have a moratorium from December 15th to the middle of February of applying any nutrient. And so, you know, used to, the best time to apply chicken manure here was on frozen ground. You weren't making ruts. You weren't making a mess. But now that's not the case. And it's actually illegal for us to apply manure on frozen ground. But we have found the same effect. If we can get in there as that cover crop is starting to green up after winter, that we're finding that it grows and more or less encapsulates yep. that manure. There's a little bit of a gray area there on our nutrient management, but we're able to defend ourselves and that's good enough for them. Well, that's what we're doing in the meantime here. We're documenting with nitrogen samples. We're going out in early spring, get the nitrate samples and then backing them up through the season. And it goes back to, well, I mentioned in the field with the germoxone on, we documented with the clovers, we produced 40 pounds of nitrogen mm -hmm. in the spring, but where we didn't do anything, and just roll crimped it we produced 80 pounds of nitrogen so i'm like why did i waste the time and effort to use that germoxone i just got to figure out how to take the next step and my long-term goal is where i want to start getting away from nitrogen periods we'll get back to lauren steinloggy and jay baxter in a moment but i want to take time once again to thank our sponsor pivot bio for supporting today's episode it's time to rethink nitrogen 
Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text PROVEN to 31313. Now let's get back to Lauren and Jay as they talk double and triple cropping, learning from the past and looking to the future. Now tell me the size and scope of your operation. I'd say we're down to mid-size in our area. I mean, I used to be up to about 1,500 acres. I've taken a full-time job with Dawn Equipment now, so I've dropped down to just our home farm and one rented farm. Okay. I dropped all custom work. So part of that was when Rollin got sick. At one point, we were up to 2,500 <laughs> with the combine and all that. The best part is we lost our worst ground and biggest headaches, and now we can focus on what we're doing. And now we're going to focus on helping figure out iron, making better tools for what we're doing. Yourself. We're in the upper ends of where you once were the biggest. And so that's a challenge in itself is that, like I talked earlier, of trying to see how we can grow. Intend to speak out of turn here, but this is just my observation. Within the next 10 or 15 years, there's going to be a lot of farmers that are in their 60s now or pushing 70 that they're going to retire. Somebody's going to be coming along picking up that ground. Somebody's going to be coming along picking up that acreage because these farmers are retired. There's no next generation for them. And so they're looking and we've got to be prepared for it. By no means am I looking to double my size. I can't physically do it. I'd like to think that we could stand to shrink back a little bit and do a better job of what we're doing. That's where I see a lot of my friends that are doing, friends across the country. That's what I see a lot of us doing, focusing and going more towards the value added product and stuff like that. Commodity production is a rat race to the bottom. Do I want to compete to be a low cost producer or sell a quality product? My intention is to do the most economical what's the biggest return on my investment. So that's what we're trying to focus in on. I'm not focused yet. What are you trying? Well, we're trying just as we talk. We've cut out, even on our vegetable production, used to when I was a teenager, guys growing llama beans. Just for your information, Delaware is the number one producer of baby llama beans in the country. And so you're growing llama beans, you're plowing. So that's just a fact. And in your culling, you're culling two or three times. We're growing a no-till and cover crop. It took me a couple years. Good advice my grandfather always gave me is, before you start looking into another crop, let's figure out how to do a good job with the crops you're growing. And that was some real good advice. Let's master this one before we take on another one. And irrigation is what drives the agronomic part of any farm in Sussex County. I don't know the percentage of irrigated acreage, but I know it's grown leaps and bounds in the last 10 to 15 years. And so you might as well say 90%, 95% of our land is irrigated with center pivot. So that's why winter wheat gets knocked off for me. It's because come June 15th, my concentration is me putting two tanks of fuel in my truck a week because I'm riding around the county working on irrigations. And so that's crucial for us. That's my busiest time of year is summertime. So those other things have kind of just, they don't suit. And I'm good at it. And that's key. On the flip side, I'd say water holding capacity has been the biggest I've been focused on. And that's what we're starting to see. We can pretty well document that our soil is holding almost twice as much moisture as my neighbor. When that grain drop falls, I want to catch it. We're doing double crop in Iowa. And at one time I was told that wasn't possible. But if we have the right year now, we've even triple crop. That takes a little more practice. Tell me what a triple crop looks like in Iowa. Uh, cereal crop relayed with a soybean crop. And then we'll follow the cereal with buckwheat. And we'll harvest 
harvest the buckwheat and soybeans together. So when do you plant your soybeans? Well, the cereal crop will go in the fall before. Yep. yep. And then the so let's say you've got a winter wheat, let's say, right? Yeah, winter wheat. Cereal rye tends to be my favorite okay. just because I've got a good market for it and mm -hmm. nobody else wants to do it. So, hey, let's go that route and we'll put that in the fall. We'll come in as early as we can in the spring, put the soybeans in there. Which is usually first week or two of May for you're us. Planting a fifteen inch row, you plant them with a drill. Uh, the cereal crop goes in twin rows, uh -huh. and then thirty inch soybeans. You're splitting rows. Yep. Okay. Then we'll come in. The buckwheat would go in right where the cereal crop was after we harvest the cereal out, and the soybeans is there. The best part is the buckwheat helps us provide uh, weed control. And question I get a lot of time is, is how well you only got X amount of moisture. Well, you got to start paying attention to your moisture a year in advance, basically. Do we have enough moisture there? We can hold it. That's where we're drastically different. It's said in Sussex County that we're 10 days away from a drought. Yeah. Our weather can change. I mean, we've seen it. I mean, we've had to run irrigation through standing water to irrigate the rest of the field because we've had too much rain in one period. And within 10 yep. days time, we're irrigating again because that's what the crop yeah requires. see our biggest challenge anymore is what they call flash droughts if you don't have the water holding capacity in that you can't weather them during that critical time and you know now if we can hold twice as much weight infiltrate it and hold it probably the extreme side of where you're at is everything we have is pattern tiled almost Mm -hmm. you know, so our drainage is our biggest issue, but now we're finding out our tile lines don't run near as often. You know, the one year we were part of a study there, the county, they did 40 farms. Our tile line only ran four times all summer. Everybody else's ran all summer. And the only time they could get the water samples is after a two inch rain because it flushed. What about cover crop species? You guys have touched on species that you've used here and there and kind of like what's worked and what's not. But can we take a second just to kind of go through the list of things that you've tried and favorites and things that you'll never do again and, and that? My favorite is hairy vetch. Hairy vetch is something that, so a little bit of my story. We spray irrigate treated wastewater from the local municipality on part of our acreage here. So that forced us into growing a crop all year long. And so we were buying bin run wheat just to fulfill a requirement. And you know what, there's gotta be something better. This is the part of the monster that I inherited. And then I started thinking there's gotta be something better that we can make it worth our while. What can I start to plant that'll actually return something back to me that I can use as that crop? And so started consulting with some other people that were more experienced than I was. And they got me in touch with a farmer down in Virginia and he and I have gotten to be pretty good friends and can toss around some of these ideas. And he turned me on to Harry Vetch. And that seemed to have been a start of a, and I'll call it a fad here in Sussex County that everybody, well, hey, you're trying Harry Vetch. How's that working out for you? And then you have the other guy, well, my grandfather tried Harry Vetch back in the 50s and he said he'd never grow it again. So then you've got the guys, well, I'm growing wheat and that Harry Vetch, that worries me. You get some of that hardy seed and you've always got the what ifs. But I have found that it is something that's necessary on this farm. And then we started blending it with a grass and we like cereal rye, but sometimes the size of it can be a little bit overwhelming. We have learned to overcome it. I had the opportunity, my grandfather, you know, I've still got the spreader that he used to use. He used an old farm all and a little 12 volt spreader that he'd mount on the back of that thing. And he would go through and intercede annual ryegrass in his corn crop. When the corn was obviously small enough, he could still get through it with his old M. And I'm not there. I'm really not there. But he talked about that ryegrass and how good it was. He said, I swear that you could take a chain and you could hook onto that ryegrass root. And he said, you pull the whole farm up. That was what he talked about. So I tried it. I couldn't get the stuff to grow. And I said, what the heck with this? This doesn't work. He talked me into trying it again. He and a salesman, he and a seed salesman talked me into trying it again. And I changed a few things up. And it's, it's becoming something that we're adopting. And it's working out pretty good. The, the stuff that the barleys and the wheats, I don't think there's a tremendous amount of value here. Not enough rooting. 
Yep. We throw a, a third species type in there. We're big fans of the big rooted crops, uh, the tillage radish. But with us, it's timing. We've got to make sure we get some of that on. Even this year, for instance, it was not a priority for me at the time. I should have been irrigating some cover crop. And I probably lost the cover crop and wasted that seed cost because I didn't irrigate that cover crop. And that's just one of those things. It wasn't a priority versus other things at the time. But the bin run wheat, if I can go back to that for a sec in the very beginning. So did you see any benefit of it that kind of gave you a foothold to say that the cover crops had potential in general? Or was it more from the aspect of we're spending time on this and if we're going to do it, then we might as well manage it? Yeah, it was more more the latter. Okay. It was more the latter. We had to, this was something that we were required to do. Right. And so we were fulfilling a requirement Mm -hmm. and we were terminating that wheat as soon as we could. Okay. You know, that wheat had to be terminated. We could terminate that wheat in such and such time. Let's March 15th. And we could start spreading manure February 15th. Well, well, we didn't want to start spreading manure until we terminated that wheat because that wheat was going to draw that nutrient out of the ground when then we'd lose it. Or we were still tilling every single acre we owned. We were still chisel plowing. Well, you ever try to chisel plow through a half-grown wheat field. It's a nightmare. Yeah. So we got to where we would go and kill it okay. ahead of time. And that's when we started looking into these other crops and started kind of experimenting there and kind of started planting green by default. I mean, that first year of growing vetch was almost like, whoa, boy, what have I done? Went 10 feet across the field and wrapped up every single sprocket on that planter, wrapped up my road cleaners. I mean, it was just spent three hours unclogging a 16 row planter. So I called my buddy down in Virginia who I bought the seed from. I was like, all right, now what, Bruce? He goes, well, you gotta figure out some way to get out there and flatten that mess out. He said, I've been known to even go out there with a drill before just to get it flattened out. He said, you got a turbo till? I said, no, I don't. So we went out with a rolling basket that didn't have a buster bar across the front of it. And that was the most fun job on the whole entire farm because you're in road gear traveling 30 foot at a time, just knocking down this cover crop. And oh, it planted like a charm. And that's the way we continued on until we designed a new planter and built it the way we wanted to, to be able to adapt into planting green officially. So essentially you crossed the cover crop line into the companion cropping in an early phase. Now I still don't consider us companion cropping. But are you getting the nitrogen benefit out of the vetch? Absolutely. That's the, well, that's, that's, the, that's that, one of the that's, main reasons I'm using it. That's part of the mindset for a companion. Okay. I mean, that's why I don't really like talking covers anymore. I prefer the companions. Okay. If you're planting them with the intent to gain. Well, that's everything we grow. Yeah. But a lot of people are going for the payment while they're cover cropping. <laughs> okay. In, in my right. mind. I, I mean, see, the way I visualize a companion crop is something that you're going to grow the two of them at the same time with the purpose of them both helping each other out at the same time. But no, you know, if, if, you if you're planting yeah. with the intention of a gain, it's a companion. The gardeners had a lot of this figured out many years ago. If you start studying gardening charts, you plant this to promote help that, you plant that to help. It's all cross checks. It's interesting you started with annual ryegrass because O2, that's what we started with. Instead of seeding oats, we started with it for a nurse crop for alfalfa and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So 2006, we started interceding in our corn. I had annual ryegrass, let's start with that. And then we figured out that we had hay ground in that and had plenty of clovers. And as I said earlier, the clovers grow naturally in our area. So throw the clovers in there and that, that was our early interseed mixes in corn. And then we started playing with the vetches and stuff like that. And you know now I probably won't be out there with less than 10 different seeds when we're interseeding in corn. And then you start getting comfortable with that. Well, that's when the plus, oh, by the way, we built the drill that would could do that good. So now all of a sudden well, we got that. We're set up to do the relay cropping. 
So now we use the same drill. We can put down fertilizer. We can drill the inner seed. We can drill the cereal crops for the relay. We've even used it to plant the beans in the relay, but you know it had inherent problem there. So that's why we have a 30 inch planter for that now. But this year we got really wild and we had up 62 different seeds depending on the field and the mix. So. All right. So I, you got to explain that to me because I ask every single person I come across that doing these practices like we are. And I ask them, all right, what's the purpose for having more than a three-way mix? I get having a legume and a grass and a brassica together. 62 species at a time? Explain it to Well, me. the biggest thing is I'm not smart enough to know what seeds are going to thrive this year. You know, Even when we started with the clovers, we always had at least three different clovers in there. So, you know, every year one of them would thrive and I could guarantee every year one of them would fail. So getting in that 32-way mix we had this year, chances are there was probably six or seven different clovers. So it's not as extreme as it sounds, but it's upping our chances to make sure something thrives. Because we're also, we tend to be on the low end of seeding rates. So we're not putting any extra seed out there when we have to. I mean, my average seed cost on interseed is, well, this year was $9 an acre on my corn program. So we're very low density, but we want very good chance that one of them is going to thrive. We have the few core ones, annual ryegrass. We know that's going to thrive. Now, we're, I think this year we had up to seven or eight clovers in that. Well, if half of them thrive, my goal is if we have a plant every square foot, that's all I need. When you hear some of these people talk the exorbitant seeding, you know, I was up north of here and they were talking two bushel an acre. I'm like, huh? Yeah, they're growing <laughs> a cash crop. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's, like I said, all our interseed mixes, all that, 62-way mix, that was the biological primer mix. That was our big biomass cover we were going for. the way this year went. Anything planted after August 1st or 4th, we didn't gain a lot. Barely two, three feet tall come freeze up, and even our interseed there towards the end, we had a chance to get a drone in to seed cover crops. I had one field of corn, we didn't get interseeded, so it's like... We had a chance to get the drone in. We seeded uh, crimson clover in standing corn. Beautiful stand out there, but it never got more than an inch or two tall. Two months of growth. I don't think we had the solar power this year. I don't think we had the heat. Mm -hmm. It just got cold, damp. Here's a question. Where do you see some of the cover crops going in the future? I, I see mean, it as a necessity, but I also see the pushback that we have now. I see that continuing. There's even some powers that be that see it unnecessary, almost going the wrong way. And to them, I have to say, prove it to me. We're trying to yep. do these things and to do it on a scale of an operation like this with the manpower that we don't have. Some of these experiments with trying this and trying that, every year we're finding we get different results on things. And that's the part that is really hard for me to wrap my head around. But things that I do know, if I can plant Harry Vetch with a 15-inch planter using a sorghum plate, that I have cut my seeding rate back astronomically. And I have extended my planting date that we don't know when. I swore last year it was so wet in the spring of 2019 mm -hmm. or the fall of 2018, it was so wet we didn't get any cover crops planted that we were going to plant around here. We start planting peas for harvest about the middle of February. Well, if they can plant peas middle of February, why can't I plant cover crops middle of February? Well, it was too wet and we didn't do it. So that's still on my radar as things to do as to where this planting window goes. But it's again, it, it all comes back to efficiency and seeds per acre that we plant there's our cost yep the biggest thing i foresee coming that's where i want to be by this summer we're gonna be running robot then we can pick the day we want to seed it can get done you talked about the labor issue and stuff like that you know, if all i got to do is make sure on my iphone that that 
robots out there running. That's my mission of 2012. The technology is getting closer. And like I said, my goal is by June, we're going to have one running in the field. And main objective is by fall, I want to have it running because here we're sitting this fall. I'm going to come and talk to you guys about relay cropping. Well, Mother Nature said, screw you this year. <clears throat> Last year already, we seeded right up until frost. Well, it was almost like the rye cold imbibed and I had the worst looking rye I had ever last summer. You know, granted, hindsight, I should have probably kept more of it, but I just made up my mind and starting to look at going to hybrid cereal rye and stuff like that. Well, that has to be in even earlier. So to hit them windows, I think that's where we need to be. And I see the high boys running and all that, but if we can get this robot figured out, it's like simple, it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, it can sneak down in between the rows, don't hurt the corn. And the technology's coming and we've seen it with the, seen with the drone this year. It's pretty powerful. I think at one point he was hitting 30 acres an hour. That's impressive. There's no drone technology here on the Eastern Shore like that. And that's the interesting thing that, right. Yeah, but they, they, they just got legal in Iowa in August. Mm-hmm. You know, in August, they got legalized. In September, we had one flying in my field. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> but Rantizo would be the company I'd want to look up on that. And I mean, I know there's several other companies coming, but some really cool technology. You can tell this stuff's starting to take root. Everybody else can sit out there and, well, how you doing? How's this paying? How's that? It's like, well, things are lining up right now that I think there's more of us out there than people realize. So tell me about your dad. You My dad? 84 years old? Yeah. Dad was born in 1936. Yeah. Served uh, Berlin Ultimatum, came home, started farming, and moved to our farm in 1968. Six weeks after I was born, he was burnt. Uh, I think 75% of his body and he was basically told he should have quit farming so he was forced to automate that's the only way he could stay farming but a lot of what we've figured out on our farm through that time frame is what he saw when he was in Germany during service we were probably one of the first ones with the liquid manure pit not we had liquid manure and for a dairy in 1976 by 79 we had an underground manure pump that it pumped it from the dairy barn to the pit, so we didn't have to haul manure all winter. There was a stretch there when the local community college built that uh, they would come to our place and look at stuff. So everybody calls me the innovative one at times. It's like, no, I'm just carrying out what my dad taught me, and I'm fortunate enough. He's probably my biggest fan, and that's one thing I see holding a lot of people back is peer pressure, and a lot of it comes from within the family. That was my question. How is he handling this innovation, this paradigm shift? But he's been embracing it his whole life. That goes back to my mindset. The best farmer roundtable I ever had was the average age of him was 80. Because a lot of what I've learned how to do is just going back in time and figuring yeah. out what they knew back then, tying it with the technology and the equipment we're afforded nowadays, and bringing it forward. Everybody thinks cover crops is a new thing. No, 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 no. Now, green manure was the catalyst all the way through, and was fortunate enough uh, last, I think it was last August, I stopped at a meeting in Indiana, and elderly Amish gentleman was the neatest presentation i ever seen. He went back to medieval times, or whatever it was. They traced the cover crops back to figuring out rotation and stuff like that. And the Industrial Revolution followed all that all the way up through, and it's just like, Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I've already told you about the cedar that they use, the, the little spreader. It probably wasn't spreading to 15 foot at a time. And so that's another challenge for us is adapting to the size and scope of our operation. Yep. Talk about some of your equipment. And I'm curious to see how big it is and how big it's willing to get to fit a large operation yeah. or a larger operation. We've got 
you, you want to talk back in time besides that little spreader. We've still got four or five horse-drawn clover planters. Well, my grandfather used to walk in between checkerboard cornfields. And I said, well, when did you do it? He said, usually about the time the corn's formed. He said, because you'd walk along and those ears would knock you right upside the head. He said, you really had to pay attention where you're going. He said, that mule knew where he was going. He said, he didn't care about you back there. But he was interceding crimson clover as a cash crop. They would harvest that crimson clover after they cut the corn down, put it up in shocks. They'd go back and harvest that crimson clover, take it to a seed cleaner and clean that seed and then resell it. And also that crop was feeding the corn crop. And it's just, here we are, like you said, we're back full circle again. Yeah, I mean, in 06, when I first started paying attention to it, and then 09 when Rollin got sick is when I really had time to focus on stuff. Some of the best knowledge on interceding in that comes from uh, 1900 Tennessee, the early 1900s. The University of Tennessee was doing a lot of research, and coincidentally, annual ryegrass, clovers, cowpeas, all that mm-hmm. that works today worked then. Any last thoughts or comments or questions? You give me an awful lot to think about. Likewise. Mm-hmm. And that's the neat part about these conversations. Need more of them. Keep them going. Well, I appreciate you both. You made it easy for me to accomplish my goal where I talk as little as possible. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Lauren Steinlogge, Jay Baxter, and Jen Nelson for this conversation about making cover crops work in no-till. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.